immersive audio podcast in conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast brought to you by 1618 Digital. Today, host Oliver Cadell is joined by leading 3D sound specialist Henrik Opperman. Henrik is the founder of Shalgieber and former head of Sound of Visualize. An expert in his field, Henrik has developed hardware and software audio applications for VR, collaborating with leading sound partners to deliver the best possible immersive sound. In this episode, Henrik discusses the importance of being involved in a project from the early stages, the ins and outs of recording in unusual locations, new technology in higher order ambisonics. Hello. Hello. Thanks for coming today. Um, we are in London Fields. It's a sunny afternoon. How are you? Yeah, it's, it's nice. It's very sunny. I wish I could see the sun, but... <laughs> yeah, we, we are in the basement in, in the office, so we can't really see any sun, but it's good to know that it's sunny out there. So um, I've known you for about three years now. You've been holding an important role at Visualize as head of sound. How did that come about and how did you get into audio industry in general? Basically, after I studied sound in Germany, I started working in uh, sound studios and basically working on um, sound design, doing post-production for advertisement mainly. This was after my bachelor's degree and um, basically after working there for two years uh, and a bit, um, I decided to go to London and go for my master's degree. Basically, that brought me more into touch with uh, surround sound and, and spatial sound. And I was always interested in 3D sound and, and speaker setups and all of this and, and how you can spatialize things. And connections from my university at Goldsmiths basically brought me in touch with this more. And I, I started working with it. And um, then VR eventually came along. And for me, for me, it was a no-brainer to go into it because you can have 3D sound uh, interactively with just headphones. And um, I found that really intriguing. So I met Henry from Visualize. We did um, our first project together, um, which was basically a Formula One car going around a Silverstone at that time. And it was Nico Rosberg uh, in his new car. The first time it was going out, it was huge pressure. And we both have been standing next to the car while it was going out and just praying that everything is going fine. Wow, I can imagine that. Yeah, and, um, and it was also both for us the first time doing this kind of thing. And uh, we put a lot of research into it before. And um, then it came back and everything was fine. And um, almost everything was fine. But <laughs> yeah, that, that's how we, how we met, basically. And uh, then we, we worked together for a year and I've been freelancing for him. And then eventually it came together and I started working for Visualize at their, um, as their head of sound. Wow, that's a truly inspiring story. Talking of Visualize and your role, what do you guys do at Visualize, just in few words, for our audience? Do you do anything differently? The thing that's different is that we're actually purely producing VR and we're just, that's, that's, that's all we do. We're, we're just purely concentrating on virtual reality and mainly 360 video. And that's something that we've been doing like uh, almost four years now, I believe. And um, it's been, quite an interesting ride and, and I think that's special for us being based in, in Europe, in London, um, being purely focused on that none of our competitors is, is purely a VR studio um, and uh, we're just having a huge knowledge about how to make things work and, and have quite a lot of post-production tricks out there and actually also having people through the whole bench. So um, it was quite important for us to, to have really a, a DOP nuke editor sound, everything in-house, because we needed to, to figure out a workflow from the beginning when, when nothing was there. And we, we were able, through the combination of people, to actually figure out how to solve a lot of problems and how to speed up our workflow. And that's, that's, I think that's special about Visualize, that we're actually having a very fast turnaround. 
and we know how to do stuff and how to achieve things and not having to figure out everything. It's of course always new, like there's no production that's the same like the other because it's it's a new medium. Yeah, but uh, it's definitely still a lot of fun and uh, I enjoy that it's still different. It's There's no standard set, so that's good. Yeah, I can imagine, especially in the early days where pretty much every VR production is something new, could be easily world's first and there's always like an element or aspect that you have to figure out for the first time, which, you know, you can possibly find equally exciting and challenging and, you know, rewarding at the same time. What Was that transition easy and natural from your previous experience in audio industry, or perhaps you found yourself in a totally new territory? Do you feel that there was a need to change your mindset about how the audio for immersive content is developed, created, and then delivered to audiences? Um, there's a few things about it. Basically, I, I already had quite a bit of knowledge in, in working with multi-channel audio and making network, but there was no established workflow. There were no tools. Um, we started out uh, with working in 5.1, integrating it into apps, and then basically starting to work with Ambisonics later on. And um, it was interesting to learn about all these things like uh, having a different aesthetic for mixing also because like when you work in stereo or regular medium you you're always mixing everything up front so you have everything quite close usually and now it's different so you have to put a headset on and check the distance of the person standing in front of you and make sure that it feels right that you're not actually having the voice just in front of your face but in the correct position, also importantly in the distance. That's very much different to, to regular productions. It's been interesting to, to, to be able to put together the right tools and, and see how, how we can actually really make things working very fast and, and establish especially reliable um, workflows because we believe in a, in a professional environment you need to have a solution that works all the time and you don't have to fix your system in order to get to your goal. And, and that, that was a very important uh, point for me to, to make that work. Absolutely. If you have to fix things and figure out technicalities of, of your tools and workflows on a regular basis, it certainly takes away from your creativity and mm -hmm. you know prevents you from using that precious time um, on the project being creative and trying to do something interesting. Yeah, exactly. You, you need to be in control of your tools in, in order to achieve something higher and not concentrating on fixing stuff. And the interesting part is that it's still developing. Everything is, is, is still flowing and you still need to do your research and get a good amount of R&D time to, to update yourself in between the projects to, to be able to get the best product out there that you can. Do you think um, we've come far in terms of what tools uh, we had at our disposal in the early days of uh, immersive audio production, let's say, which was only about three years ago, to be honest, um, do you think we've achieved like another level which we could consider like a significant milestone moving forward? Or do you think we haven't really moved on that far from where we were initially? I think we actually moved on quite a lot since, since I started and I'm currently quite happy with my tools and, and I think I can achieve a lot and be a like in audio, we are miles, like light years ahead of video. Like we, we can also, like I don't have any problem into transitioning into AR because I have everything ready to do that. It's, it's not a problem for me. Um, with video, we're looking at volumetric capture and that's, that's still in development and uh, it's bringing a lot of uh, problems with it. Like I said, we're, we're fine in, in audio and um, for me it was a turning point when I actually found out about the uh, Blue Ripple sound plugins because I always disregarded them and then I actually dived into it and saw what an amazing system that is and, and how advanced it is and it's been uh, around for quite a while already. And um, since working with it, I actually had a lot of feedback uh, with Richard, who's doing the, the plugins, and um, um, it developed from there so much, and it's, it's giving you a really good workflow. Um, then also, it was very interesting that Two Big Ears was acquired by Facebook, and uh, it's actually now a, a free workstation, and everybody can have it. And, and spatial sound is, is achievable for, for anyone. 
especially in a connection with a, a DAW like Repo, which is basically free or very cheap. That's quite a big push for, for, for sound in VR and, and opening it up. And uh, I think spatial audio will become also very important in other parts, but um, not just uh, 360 video, um, also interactive sounds and head-tracked uh, headphones alone. And um, I think there, there, there's still a few milestones to grab, um, but we've come quite far. It's just what we do, what we make of it now. Yeah. Same like concrete. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> do you think the acquisition of Two Big Ears by Facebook played a quite an important role in democratization of the whole concept of immersive audio. And because of that, there's been a significant push forward. I think it is good in the way that people have an accessible tool. And I think in VR, it's, it's, sound is playing a massive role and it needs to be spatial. It's, it's going hand in hand with it. Like you, you wouldn't like to have a 360 video with stereo because it doesn't make any sense. So it's good that it's accessible and people are, they, they created a, a huge awareness of it. And so people actually jump onto it and, and I barely, I never have people who wanting just a stereo mix or anything. So, so I'm, I'm very happy with that. And I think that's the importance to that. Still, it's bringing a, a different problem that like someone is now just downloading a, a Facebook 360 plugins for free and saying like, okay, I'm, I'm doing special sound now, but not having any real experience into with spatial sound and um, how to, to approach the mix and, and how to make it work. A lot of small things you need to know and um, I think we, we need to learn on how, like, what's good spatial sound and what is just being penned around. I 100% agree with you. Um, I can relate to my personal experience as well. I, as I mentioned earlier, you've you worked on, on over 40 VR projects. And I certainly believe that it takes time to develop certain qualities uh, in terms of how you approach the project and develop the taste, how, how you portray the spatial mix. And you just need a little bit of time to, and, you know, practical experience to accumulate that flow and, you know, to achieve the sort of better quality immersive um, results. That was a very interesting point, um, talking about um, Facebook's contribution to the overall immersive audio move. Let's go back to your personal approach. Um, when you get a new project, uh, which perhaps has its own unique challenges and qualities, what are the key steps you would consider and think through to ensure that you can accomplish it from A to Z as smoothly as possible, on time, on budget? And this goes for everything, pre-production, location, post-production, anything that isn't audio related even. It's usually the three Ps, which is pre-production, pre-production, pre-production. <laughs> and... Um, it's, uh, I think it's important to get in as early as possible into a project as a sound person. That, that's great working with Visualize because I know when a project is coming in, I'm going to meet the clients and I can talk to them about sound straight away. And I think for other companies, it's quite hard because they're just creating a, a, a virtual experience, a VR experience. And um, they're planning it out and then they say like, oh, uh, we're having everything and now we need to have sound also and book someone for the sound. And then you're running into the issues. And um, I think it's, it's quite important to get someone in and actually also directing the sound a bit and telling the people what's possible, what's not possible, what's the best practice. How can you achieve storytelling with the help of sound? And sound alone also is nothing it needs to be interwoven with picture and story. And this all needs to be brought together, which is a lot of times still quite poorly executed. And so, so that's, that's the, the, the most important thing to be on, on site very early and um, actually having the chance to, to intervene and, and um, also to consult the people who are planning to do this, like um, clients coming to us also for our expertise in, in video and like how to do these things. And, and, and a lot of time it's about consulting our clients and also to educate them about VR on how it's working and how 
to achieve certain things because they, they usually come from traditional media and have a completely different approach and say, just say like, um, okay, yeah, we're going to have the scene and then like waking up, then we have a close up to alarm everything. And then, okay, that's just a very basic example, but like, okay, it's not possible to have this close up that easy. Like, how do you want to do that? And uh, there are certain other things and other things to consider with spatial sound that you're actually having a directive cue for that in, in, in the soundscape and everything. So that's our main thing, basically, um, going out there and telling the people about the best ways and, and best techniques. I agree that, you know, sound traditionally has been a bit of an ugly sister of a video. And I'm afraid to admit that um, we must have inherited that um, long-standing mentality from people who commission content. But what's actually different today with immersive content, it's running into an issue often where it can no longer be fixed in post. You have to address those issues at early stages. And it doesn't all come down to fixing problems later on. It also opens up creative possibilities. When, when, exactly. when you have everybody sat you know, around the table and thoroughly discuss you know, what, what's impractical, what's feasible, you know, perhaps those sort of discussions at early stages can yield certain ideas and concepts that perhaps in, just by talking in uh, video capture in isolation, you wouldn't have come up with. And ultimately, it's not about what's more important, video or sound. It's one of those things that, you know, by, by working together can yield much stronger results yeah, and yeah. create much more compelling experience. Mm -hmm. You know, two plus two isn't four here. In this case, it's more like six and seven. Mm -hmm. And um, the, more, the more people can realize that uh, the, the value of this approach, the, you know, the better off everybody else and the industry is going to be. Yeah, I mean, there, 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 there are also so many things which you have to think of. And also it's like, I mean, getting close with the DOPs you're shooting with and also the, the post-production, talking to them on, on how you can plan a scene, how can you get a mic into the scene, which is then maybe visible, but it's easy to get out in post and uh, what's actually quite impossible to do in post or just taking a lot of time and money to to fix and and just finding the best ways there and also just know your equipment very well know on how you can fix lav mics in in many different ways and on and basically also in hidden uh, spaces uh, so so it's not going to be on camera for cinematic uh, experiences that's quite important and um how to not get rustling noise and also know how how you have to set your game basically and be able to walk away and being able to say like okay this is going to work out and and rehearse and get it right and uh make sure that the director is also having a line to listen in and everything it's uh yeah there, there are many things you have to consider and uh, uh i learned a lot on the way I'm, I'm very thankful for the fact that like we've been there early on and like it, our mistakes were easily forgiven because like it was like cutting edge stuff and um, nowadays it isn't anymore. Nowadays you need to know what you're doing and it's important and uh, because there are big budgets behind it and, and you you'd better do your thing just right and um, to, to, to keep the client uh, happy really. Yeah, absolutely. Would you be able to discuss any unique workflows that, in your opinion, are most optimal for achieving the best immersive content, as far as sound concerned? Um, the best workflow is the bespoke workflow for every every single project, really, because you need to approach it always differently uh, with the elements you have around you and how you treat an ambisonic sphere and how to place stuff, how to make space for it. And um, that's why I'm thankful to have these really uh, advanced tools um, to, to work with and um, giving me the flexibility to achieve that really. So it's, it's not about a unique workflow because there's not a single solution out there where I can say like, okay, this is the holy grail. grail. You take it and, and that's it. It's more about knowing your tools very well and knowing how to, to work around things. I'm, always feel like I'm, I'm hacking something together, but 
um, I'm achieving my goal definitely, but I, I need to know my tools because there are a lot of different tools out there who are working completely different from a stereo workflow and you need to be really aware of it and know how every plugin is working, how to integrate automation to that in, into the mix and, and, and play around. It's, it's, it's so hard to, to say on, on what's the best way. Just know your tools and, and, and make it work. It always comes down to the conventional wisdom. It's not always about that the latest plugin, and it, it's really all about where you stand, um, knowing what what you're trying to achieve, having your objective really clear, and then you can always figure out the tools. You know, to, tools come and go, but having that attitude and firmly knowing where you're going with it how, mm-hmm. and how you're using it, that always remains the key value in, yeah. in any practice. Yeah, my my very first boss in Frankfurt used to say, like, just work with the regular Pro Tools plugins. You don't need to have any fancy plugins. I mean, learn that later on, but just achieve the things because they all do kind of the same. And it's not about a plugin. It's it's like you can achieve anything, really. It's just about how you use it and, and know why you're doing these things and like um, learning just essential stuff like, okay, 1200 kilohertz is always a bit muddy in a mix and you, if you just put it out, it might open up a bit. Try it and, and all of these things and you don't need any fancy EQ or anything for that. So that's that's basics and other plugins which are kind of fancy which you have in the, in the stereo uh, world, I would say, um, that's not really existent in in um, in ambisonics. It's more about tools and not about emulating analog gear, for instance. And um, it's it's just uh, tools to create clean sound. And you you can do whatever you like. You can work around everything, but um, the most important thing is that you just learn your skill and that you're not trying to get this religion into it and uh, believing that one certain plugin will help you when you didn't do good work. It's quite an interesting situation at the moment. Like Even though we, in 2017, in, in a field of immersive audio, we find ourselves in a bit like 1960s or 50s where audio gear was pretty scarce and it all depended on the, the quality of performance and artistic values and things like that and the kind of stuff people achieved, especially in the music industry, you know, just by knowing your craft really well and being able to deliver really well. And it kind of forces you to go back to the fundamentals and really think through your pre-production approach, your audio recording, you know, capturing your content and and the idea itself. Because those are the aspects that will carry through the most of your, you know, the, the, the good qualities of the, of the content, you know, and the kind of plugins we use at the very end could be more or less depending on a specific case, but it's, it's maybe last 10, 20%, you know, perhaps it's not a bad thing. It's just a re- fresh reminder that, you know, where the real values are, where our focus should be mm-hmm. as content creators rather than, you know, chasing the the latest, the flashiest plugin. Yeah, the content is the most important thing, definitely. A lot of people are talking about high-order ambisonics in various contexts, and um, I wanted to ask you, what's your overall opinion about that, and um, how how do you compare the current capabilities of uh, reproduction systems uh, and platforms with where we can potentially go with high-order ambisonics, and uh, what are the real gains, and... Is it worth the hassle, uh, if you will? My post workflow is in third order ambisonics, so I have a channel resolution of 16 channels. If I could, I would like to work in seventh order ambisonics, which is 64 channels, simply because it wouldn't make any difference for me in, in my workflow. It would just give me a higher resolution of the sphere. I can always go down in the order without any quality issues anyway. So as a 3D sound format, I would definitely see higher order ambisonics as a standard. On the other hand, um, on the recording front, it's maybe, yeah, I mean, if, if you're looking at things like the Eigenmic or anything, you see that there are still a lot of issues which need to be figured out and get done right. Figuring out the correct 
correction filters for ambisonic signals and everything because you're losing a lot of the high frequencies if, if you're introducing a lot of capsules um, and combining them. And um, I, I'd rather have a good quality first order microphone than having a higher order microphone where everything is cut off above 14 kilohertz, which takes out all the clarity. But you're getting a, a, a good positional information. On the other hand, it would be also quite interesting to have a higher order ambisonic microphone for beamforming and, and have something that works better than a shotgun microphone and place it with the camera and being very, very accurate on, on how to record someone without a left microphone. But that's another story. I think it's, it's something we need to sit and wait and see what people come up with in, in the hardware domain. And I'm, I hope we get surprised and uh, get something nice to play with. But for now, I think it's, for me on set, it's, it's first order ambisonics and definitely third order ambisonics in post. With my workflow, I can basically go for any platform. So I can go to the, the Facebook format, which is just under second order. Um, and I can just export a second order and integrate it in with the Facebook 360 encoder to the video and upload it. And it's just working uh, perfectly fine. Then I can go to first order for YouTube. And I hope that YouTube is going to go up to third order soon, um, as they already have in their jump inspector for Android. So YouTube, if you're hearing that, please do. Yeah, and then we create our own apps for our clients. And uh, there we basically deliver uh, third order ambisonics. So we have the highest res spatial resolution possible. And we're also having the uh, Blue Ripple Sound um, listeners integrated into that. And it's, it's, it's working very well. And we're, we're all very happy with that. If you could just describe the kind of the, suppose the key differences between first order and high order for, for our listeners, especially for those who haven't had a chance to to, to work with, with with those before. It's just a higher resolution and you're getting a, a nicer position around you. So if you're wearing a headset and you have third order ambisonics, it's just sounding more detailed and you get um getting a a better idea of where something is positioned. And for instance, it's quite a neat thing for music. If you do a music mix and integrate it into your th a third order, that you're actually doing it in the first order domain and you're actually getting quite a washy sphere and it's it's not really clear where the position is coming from. So, so if you're actually wanting to have not a crystal clear positioning of anything, you can just integrate it in first order and and make it make the positioning more washy. The consensus would be that high order ambisonics definitely offers a superior advantage compared to first order. However, that technology wise, we're just not quite ready, neither on hardware capture side of things, nor on reproduction side of things. And we can do things in post production, and we can maintain some of that high resolution kind of in between stages. But Overall, the, the world isn't just quite um, ready for that. Yeah, I mean, I would say on the on the hardware side, we're not quite ready yet, and on the on the software side and uh, delivery side, we're absolutely ready. Pro Tools, for instance, is not ready because it's it's stopping at eight channels. Uh, that's basically why I'm also working with Reaper, and I, I don't want to look back. Basically, I had to jump the, the, the ship. This is the limitation to 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 the channel count, really, and that's also a thing for Facebook important that they have a, a Pro Tools integration. I hope that's changing at some point, and that we're actually all going into third order because I don't see any limit to that why we couldn't do that. But I think uh, Pro Tools is taking the first steps anyway with the integration of Dolby Atmos. And um, yeah, we'll see. It's it's going on and on. And um, I think we always need to to check our blogs and and uh, the the great Facebook groups, which are very very active. And uh, it's it's very essential to be part of these groups and and getting your knowledge from there and your tips and tricks. The higher um, channel count in buses um, has been one of the most requested features for Pro Tools for quite some time now, which is absolutely instrumental to high order ambisonic workflow. Avid recently announced um, a new version of Pro Tools 12.8, which revealed the increase in, in channel count. And I, I believe it's 
11.1 now, so you can go up to 12 channels. But again, it's not sufficient enough to yeah. work in a third order on Bisonic. So things are shifting in the right direction, but perhaps not fast enough. And as you mentioned, Dolby Atmos, we can probably safely assume that Avid kind of committed to they sort of a traditionally targeted audience of uh, professional post-production level where um, people have been traditionally working in doing post-production for for large-scale films, feature films, etc. And um, definitely not looking at this sort of VR revolution uh, that is happening quietly today and not addressing the the issues and the the features that community has been craving for quite some time. But hopefully we'll see more features added quite soon. But at the same time, it's good to see that, you know, we're not stuck to one solution. There are various software options that allow us to work in, in you know, using different workflows, like you mentioned, Blue Ripple and um, Reaper with uh, 16 channels. You, you can still achieve great things uh, with um, the, the Facebook special audio workstation exclusively. Uh, that's uh, absolutely, I mean, they... they they do great tools, absolutely. It's probably safe to say that um, the majority of content that is out there today is, is probably done with those tools. Felix and Paul released a piece, Miyubi, which is 40 minutes long. 40 minutes long. I didn't have the time yet to, to watch it completely. I've watched parts of it, but it sounds great. And it's all done with the Facebook special workstation by Headspace Studios, uh, which is great. And uh, I think it's, 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 it's a very good example that it's not the tools, it's, it's the people behind it that making it happening. And also the people behind the tools bring that together to, to make it possible. And, and that's a great thing. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Totally agree with that. A question I wanted to ask, just a small in-between question, is about capturing in first order and up-mixing, working in high order, and then down-mixing and decoding to binaural or first order again. Other than having this sort of uh, future-proof and flexible workflow, which enables you to then to feed your output to any scenario, are there any other advantages of staying in high order during the post-production process and then down mixing? Or would you say that in order to really capture the high resolution and maintain, sustain, and then deliver to the final output, you would have to go as far as capturing it, working post all the way through, and then adequately decoding it on the other end? Uh, so basically the, 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 the capturing is different from case to case anyway. It's important for me that I actually have my workflow and I know what I can achieve, what I can do, and also like being on set with that knowledge on knowing how to record things in order to create a spatial mix. So basically what I have in the end is my 16-channel master file, and I can go from that to any resolution which I like to 5.1 mono stereo or first order, second order, any mixed order, uh, which is lower. That's... For now, I think a, a very good archival format to have that and, and being able to go to any other format that I wish to go to or need to go to into the future. It's in, an, an important step is uh, what I learned when you're working with clients, especially external clients. Um, inside Visualize, we uh, have it already figured out. We've been recently working um, on some projects with Jaunt also. And it's important that basically um, the person who's doing the sound is preparing the final files because you're going to have different video versions for different platforms. And then you also have different sound versions for different platforms. And there needs to be one person who's in charge of bringing the correct sound together with the correct video for the correct platform and then actually marking them very neatly so everybody can understand, okay, this version is going up to YouTube and this version is going to Facebook. And this is for the app. And then we have also a stereo version so people can review it. And then you have just a master file with a third order ambisonics attached to, to archive and just creating new formats if needed. And um, it's, it's quite an important task and um, it's, it's easily overlooked and, and 
don't rely on other people to to know all these little details and and also these things can always change like um, youtube can go to a different order or facebook can change something and you you always need to be aware of it and then take enough research time before every delivery to make sure that you're actually giving out the correct content there uh, i believe also for video we did a lot of tests on what we can actually upload because it's dating quite a like a certain file size, which is the maximum to upload. And then we found out it's actually not existent. So you can actually upload really huge files and um, what did we use 6K stereo? I don't, I don't know, It's um, I'm a sound person. So uh, we found out that we actually can just get uh, really big resolutions and big file sizes up there and um, just try to play around what's the best solution there what are the limitations and what codec is giving you the best outcome because you can upload h265 h264 everything so but that's all video questions but um for sound it might be easier but you still need to know how to do it and and if you're having a client just tell them like okay i'm i'm the one who should do the last steps i'm gonna mark the file so everybody can understand where it's going um and and that's really important Again, going back to the traditional film industry, um, at the final stage, everybody sits in a dubbing theatre and carefully listens and watches both video and audio very carefully whilst the version is printed. And that last step is taken extremely seriously. Because if you can imagine that all the work that went into it, you know, like you said, huge budgets, loads of people, loads of work, loads of stress and sweat. And one silly mistake could compromise the, the, the final outcome of, of the overall project. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've heard plenty of anecdotes where, you know, things happen in, in exactly the scenario you just described where person who was responsible about encoding final output video with audio wasn't technically equipped to do that correctly. And perhaps your first order ambisonic mix ended up in a stereo format and was published that way. And uh, just coming from the left side, <laughs> that's uh, usually a comment when, when yes. it's going wrong. Please pay attention to the very last step of your production process because that can make or break the, the campaign you, you're launching essentially. And sometimes, yes, you can go back and take a step back and listen, hey, we made a mistake, let's just fix it and move on. But sometimes um, things go too far and it's simply impossible for various reasons to to go back and think things. And the worst thing that happens there is that your fans, your audience suffers and by not receiving the best possible quality for, you know, within, within the project. We spoke about Facebook and YouTube quite extensively, but just to go back again, and uh, I wanted to ask you about um, how do you approach the projects on different mediums and platforms such as Facebook, YouTube, dedicated VR platforms for gaming, phone applications, etc. And what are the differences and difficulties that audio faces within these? I mean, for now, they are just delivery platforms. It's not like there's any massive difference on, on where I would say like, okay, um, I'm, I'm quite influenced by the, the, the platform in the end because it, it really doesn't play a role for me while I'm, I'm producing the, the, the content. There are a few technicalities I think you, you have to, to, to know. Uh, for instance, if you're working with a, a Facebook 360 platform that you can integrate a stereo mix and if you can do your work and have the stereo mix and everything and then the client wants also to have a YouTube version and then YouTube doesn't have the static stereo uh, integration and then you just have to rework everything. This is something we can luckily work around without Again, it goes back to the pre-production stage, you know, yeah, having a... Yeah thorough discussion and, and establishing your clear objectives and deliverables because it's not something you can necessarily fix uh, very last yeah, minute because yeah. it, it requires some time and effort. Yeah, I mean, I just hope that they all going to agree on to a format. Uh, the good thing is that they are mostly all on Ambix. I mean, the, the good thing is with Facebook, the encoder, they put a lot of work into it and, and taking out a lot of background knowledge that you... You don't have to worry about it. You just select your, your output, Facebook 360 or YouTube, and it's going to make it and, and you're, you're happy. 
And I, I just hope that it's getting standardized and uh, you don't need to have all these different files. And uh, because it's, it's, it is a source of error, which you can have. And I would like to have that taken out and also make it easier for the clients that you just deliver your product and they just take it, upload it onto whatever platform which they like. Um, and it's, it's also for the platforms, they, they have HRTF filters in there. Google on YouTube changed it recently, uh, which, which is a very good move and it sounds way better. Facebook uh, sounds fine as long as it's not in the browser. I think they can still make progress and, and uh, HRTF design is, is something completely different and uh, I don't want to work with it. I think there's a lot of stuff that need to be figured out, but I know also that there are quite smart people at YouTube and, and Facebook behind it and actually putting a lot of sweat and effort into it. And, and um, I, I trust those people that they're going to make a good, very, very good job. Yeah, certainly, no doubt there. We've seen quite a lot of development and R&D put into these platforms and hopefully we'll, we'll see more in future. In your opinion, uh, what would be your personal recommendation how to consume 360 VR content in order to achieve or be able to experience the best possible sound quality? The best way to consume VR right now, I think it's, it is certain factors. I think there, there's also comfort. So I'm, I'm always using the Gear VR because it's, it's mobile. You can just take it and, and it's easy. It's quite a thing to like getting to an Oculus, setting it up. And, and uh, we, we have it in the office, but like I would say in, in private life, it's quite a thing to like have a big heavy machine at home and then just doing this. You need to be really into that. But I, I quite enjoy Gear VR and uh, just make sure you have a nice set of headphones. That's that's quite important. And then also make sure that you're like having your headset quite well mounted on your head, that the straps are not pulling your headphones off because sometimes you get the straps and then the headphones are not really on your ears. If you're having on-ear headphones, uh, maybe you should just use in-ear headphones if you're using it just yourself. Because usually we have to give out uh, on-ear headphones because of hygienic reasons. We, you can clean them and then people just use them all over again on, on trade shows, for instance. But uh, yeah, it's it's just get your favorite headphones and the gear and enjoy. And I think that's the simplest and easiest way to do it currently. Is it easier working with clients who already know about VR and immersive audio, or does it give less freedom for your personal interpretation? It's all character-based, I would say. It's, it's about the combination of the right people. It's also like you work in a team. Like we at Visualize, we are just basically like a well-oiled machine because we know each other very well, been working together. If you're on set, we, don't, we barely need to speak to know what we're doing, you know? And having a person who doesn't know anything about VR and is stubborn is as bad as a person who knows everything about VR and is stubborn. It's more about meeting open characters with great ideas and basically having the ability of working together and being open for each other and um, achieving something great. I think that's the, the most, the, the chemistry is the most important part. I quite enjoy it when, when I get people who, who know things about VR already and, and you, you don't need to get into these discussions on what's possible, what's not possible and everything that's, that's speeding things up. But I think the main thing is chemistry and also, I mean, clients are clients. Good soft skills and, and how to get people into places and making them understand what, what issues you're, you're facing is, is quite an important thing to do just to handle a production in the right way, whatever person may, may be there, and, and just to get along and, and go to the goal together. Um, you have quite an impressive biography. Uh, you have worked in unusual locations, being on the most unexpected film sets, uh, which were right in the middle of crises and dangerous situations. What are the biggest challenges in capturing the location audio, especially 3D audio, uh, in those situations? And just in general as well. Good thing is with 360 video is that you can work with very, very small crews. Like for instance, we did a project with uh, four doctors without borders and went into the refugee camps. It was just like a video person and me doing the sound. And that's all we needed. And uh, a person from, from um, MSF 
to get the right people in and everything. And the tools you can use, um, which are coming from regular production, like batteries and everything for sound um, are very well. And, and you're actually quite safe. You just have to study on, on what you can use and, and how can you go out into the wild, stay there for four days and being fine for recording and just make sure that you're having basically a minimalist kit which is able to go for days. And it's it's basically about hardware choices and it's all out there. And especially in London, you get a lot of rental shops which are having like a huge amount of experience behind it. And you just give them a call and you ask them like, okay, I have this impossible, seemingly impossible task. And then they say like, oh, well, actually we have something here. <laughs> and then you're fine. And it's it's also about a network on, on how to make that work. And, and knowing people on, and, and knowing where to get the knowledge from. I would say it's uh, coming back to, to preparation and prepping everything in the, in the correct way. And there's so many things possible. And you, you're always going to be ahead of the video. So it's, it's, um, it's fine. And uh, I think the, the, the video is basically the limitation which you usually have in the field and not the audio. They will catch up eventually, but for now it's fine. Um, you just need to make sure that you're, you're having the, the correct tools and that you bring your backups and that you're getting backups of your files and everything. Challenge is basically getting everything, get into the right mindset if you're having a complicated shot and uh, make sure that you're getting, getting also all the, the, if you're traveling to, to a crisis uh, country, make sure what you need to do, how to behave there. If you're going, for instance, with a, with an organization, NGO like um, MSF, then they usually tell you what to do and they give you a security briefing, which is really good. But you also need to check like what jabs do you need to get have enough time to get those and um, also check on, on if you're going to very rural places you cannot just take a big bag from 23 kilograms like they ask you like can you bring nothing please and then you say like i try but of course it's impossible but also like always try to push back and and don't bring too much but the necessary necessary things and i mean if you if you're having for instance an ambisonic mic make sure you have another shotgun there which is very light and um, if your ambisonic mic should fail for instance then you can still record mono and build an ambisonic signal out of that get long enough material and uh, work around that um, make sure you have good batteries yeah it's um a lot to, to think about and, and talk with people who are experienced um, also just in regular production because there's there's lots of things to know and to learn uh, when you're doing this for the first time, but it's definitely achievable. So yeah, It's quite fascinating to, to learn this stuff because it's such a broad range of aspects that you have to yeah, take quite yeah. seriously, health, health and safety, then you know actual recording process and uh, being able to back out the materials you've been capturing uh, over a long period of time and then still be able to be creative and effective within your role and you know deliver that yeah you know those crucial components that will then come together at post-production stage and will will turn into a story that which is the very reason why everybody got there to begin yeah. with and, and yeah, and, and don't assume that you know everything, you know, like really try to get all the knowledge there. And there's, there's lots of official websites out there from like government and everything giving you anything and, and uh, any information about countries and talk to producers who, who know these things and, and just get the knowledge because there's so many details you don't think about. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, sounds like the, the summary here would be never underestimate what's going to be ahead of you and make sure you approach that uh, with a degree of seriousness and responsibility and allocate some time for your pre-production and preparation stages to make sure you're, you're fully ready for, you know, as, as many potential common scenarios as you can, as you can be. But of course, you know, you never know. Um, as far as your role as head of sound at Visualize is concerned, is there anything you think that could be improved and elevated in terms of production and post-production and sound in particular that can contribute to the improvement of what you do overall? And is there any, any particular message to uh, those who commission content um, that you would like to pass on 
Yeah, I, th- I think I'm very happy with how sound is being taken serious and it's kind of a trending topic in VR, I would say, um, because clients come in and, and uh, then I'm being introduced doing special sound and, oh, fantastic, you're doing special sound, so we're safe there and everything. And, and they're usually quite happy because they're aware that this is a thing and they don't know anything about it, but they, they know they need to have it. So that's great. But... I think for VR productions, it's still something where I think like, for instance, music, like there, there's never really big budgets for music. How do we approach music? How, like, should it be spatialized? Should it be static? How do we integrate it into a story? It's it's more usually like that it's, it's, it's coming always at the end. So, ah, oh, we need music now. And, and can we just have uh, library music somehow? And it's, it's, it's always a kind of a shame for production because I think bespoke music is is always a necessary thing for, for a very good production. And yeah, I would like to, like, it seems like people going into VR are so busy with, people tend to get a bit stupid because they, they, they know like, oh, we're doing something new, kind of experimental. And they are a bit overwhelmed with that and, and forget all their knowledge about standard practice of, of creating media. And they're all professionals. And some things might not apply to VR, but there are still some regular things that all apply to VR, which you can take out of a production. And I wish that people would focus more on content and not being too focused on, on technical stuff. They don't need to think about it. We, we do that. And, and they should be more focused on the creative and make sure that like music is coming together, VO properly and um, sound and picture and, and story. And, and that's, that's quite a thing that we need to concentrate on to, to make it work. That's certainly a good point. Um, people get too carried away with the novelty of the medium and forget about, you know, all, all, all the established standards and, and techniques that, you know, have been developed over the past several decades that we can tap into and take advantage of. And yeah. it certainly has an advantage to, you know, to keep your heads cool and think a little bit outside of the, not necessarily outside of the box, but perhaps like oversee the bigger picture. I mean, it's, it is like in the beginning when we, we started with VR, it almost didn't matter what content we showed the people we put on our headset and they were like their minds were blown because they saw VR for the first time and, and content was really secondary. But now people tried it two, three times and now they actually like actually want to see something and it's all about content now. And that's the important thing. We, we, we're just losing the, 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 the freshness of it and the surprising element. And um, there's... I think the potential for VR is so huge and uh, we just need to find the language of the storytelling and, and that's what we need to concentrate on really. Something slightly different, bigger picture stuff, I guess. The article on Visualize website speaks about how the mass adoption of VR will happen within the next 10 years. Do you agree with this? And how do you think immersive audio fits into this? That's a very interesting thing. Um, I think it's definitely going to happen. I don't think that, that uh, VR is going to go away. And uh, by the time Apple is going to release something with that, there's a lot of stuff going to happen because we, we basically have VR in our pockets and Apple is the only one missing in this fr- from the, the big players in the mobile phone market. And I mean, you can see by the re- release of their AR toolkit that they're going to go somewhere. And um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see. And uh, I think it's, I would definitely agree that there's going to be adoption to, 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 to the masses. And it's, it's uh, spatial sound is going to have its own thing also. If you look at Hedrack headphones um, like um, OSIC, the, the startup which basically trying to make spatial sound happening just for headphones with Hedrack is... I think it's a it's a great idea and it's just about the main important thing for me I think is is having a distribu- distribution platform and you just have an app on your phone and then you just have your headtracked headphones connected to your phone with lightning connector on iPhone for instance and you can just transport metadata like a head tracker and you just 
bring in your third order ambisonic file and you have 3D sound on the go, which I think is, is great because you can just like have, um, for instance, classical music with the stage and you can turn around and listen to the reverb of the of the, of the space, which is for classical music and a huge influence, I believe. And uh, that's going to audiobooks. You can basically have a theater playing around you and not just a voice inside your head telling a story. And also um, for electronic music, it's gonna give us space in, in electronic music composition. And that's where we need to encourage musicians on play with spatial sound and see what you can achieve and, and why would you like to use it? Like have, having a snare fill going from top to bottom and um, just play around with movement and how much does movement matter and what, what can we do about it? Kraftwerk recently uh, released 3D tracks also. Um, I didn't listen to them yet, but it's it's. I think there's there's huge possibilities behind there, and that's uh, where spatial sound is also going to the masses. And I try to see that also as an an instance for itself, which is going to go somewhere. It's just we need to create more awareness that this is actually happening and that it's possible, and uh, it's going to be very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. What do you think will be the tipping point within immersive audio, which will get the mass market attention and will become a required minimum standard? I think it's a required minimum standard anyway, in, in my opinion. I believe that a lot of people are aware and it's going to be quite complicated because it's going to be with, um, like a lot of people always say, like in VR, we need a hit. You know, we, we, we need to have some kind of experience which everybody really wants to see and which everybody is actually waiting for to happen. And I think this is something like figuring out the language of, of VR and, and the storytelling with that. It's, it's going to be growing um, in, in a quite natural way, like it did for a regular film. It took us a lot of time to go to the to arrive at the editing process where we are now, and there's still new things happening. We'll find out, I cannot say, there's going to be some 16-year-old making something amazing and everybody wants to have it. Um, can we please talk about return on investment as far as immersive content concern of any nature, I suppose, and whether you see audio playing its own role in this equation? There are very interesting aspects uh, which we learned about. Like, for instance, in the beginning when we made uh, experiences uh, for Thomas Cook and we made a New York travel experience and the bookings for New York, with, in, because they, they had VR headsets in, in their like, shops uh, and, and people were, go there, uh, were going there and then they could try to go into the VR and, and have a highlights of New York experience and the bookings to New York actually skyrocketed from that because they had this taste of it and we actually went to a lot of places shooting in, in Singapore for instance or Egypt and uh, it was very interesting the outcome to see like okay it was called try before fly and it was quite successful for Thomas Cook. I think Presence is a big thing in, in VR, a big role in that. And immersive audio is, is adding a lot to that. It, it absolutely is necessary to create good immersion for a VR experience. So basically, it's belonging all together and it's all going hand in hand. And the return on investment is always depending on the content also. So don't be surprised if you're doing something that's boring, that's not giving you anything back. So it's, it's, it's coming all back to the content and making something crafted beautifully and to, to enchant the people, basically, and, and see on, on, on where you want to go. And um, it, it always depends on what is the VR experience for. So we do yeah, a sure. lot of automotive Things. And I think for, for car fans, that's absolutely lovely because you get a ride in a car with a race car driver. He's telling you about the car and everything. And it's just beautiful. It's, 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 it's really cool. And um, I think, yeah, we, Audi is having this virtual car, car shop um, and, and you can experience it within, in, inside headsets. And it's just great. Where do you see the immersive audio being mostly used 
in the future? Would it be branded experience, medical applications, film industry, training, education, life, music, sports, concerts, or perhaps recorded music eventually? And how does this link to the mass adoption? I think for me, the, the, my current view is that every DAW is eventually transformed into a 3D audio uh, workstation because uh, with Ambisonics, Ambisonics, for instance, you can have a 3D mix and you can always mix it down to stereo or to mono or to any regular format which is out there now. And um, then we're going to explore all the sound um, and uh, on how to to create 3D sound and what we can do with it. And I think it's, it's going to be a standard and um, this is going to be opening up a lot of opportunities. It doesn't really matter what it's for. It's, it's more about how we're using it really and, and how, how we integrate it, what, what platforms we're getting for playback, for instance, on, on your mobile phones and attract headphones and, and all of these things. And there are a lot of things that need to be done and developed. And um, I hope this is going to go ahead quite, quite soon uh, because there's just a lot of interesting opportunities like I mentioned earlier with um, um, audiobooks, for instance, or concert recordings or anything. So I think the mass adoption will be coming with the standard and, and basically people learning about 3D, studio, uh, 3D sound and also having the tools integrated into any audio workstation and, and platform. And this is going to be the enforcement for the consumer having it available. The just, just the tools. The same way, like we we don't have enough VR headsets out there and available for people in an easy way. Um, this is basically one of the reasons why it's not a mass mass market yet. So um, it's it's all about availability. And for sound, we are having quite an easier availability than than video. And um, I mean, imagine Spotify is integrating ambisonic sound. And, and you can either listen to it statically in a, in a static binaural signal or you just make a switch and say, I'm listening to my speakers, so it's going to be encoded in stereo. Or you have head-tracked headphones sitting in a train listening to music and then you're walking through the street and you're going to walk around the corner and then the orchestra is going to be on the left side and then we need to have a function like, okay, if I'm going to stay in this direction for more than five seconds, then maybe the, the whole sound field should move into the front again. Um, so it is like, we need to figure out so many things and I'm, I'm, I'm really thinking about these things also. And it's basically the industry that needs to move and being aware of these tools and, and see how we can actually create interesting things for the user because in, in the end, everything is for the user. And um, as long as we are able to spark interest, this will be the mass market. Sure. Which project you were involved in you're most proud of and why? Spontaneously, the Financial Times and Google project comes to my mind, which we shot in Dublin, and it's called Dublin in the Dark. It's a very nice story and it's, it's crafted very well. We had our best camera rig out there. It's stereoscopic and I could record it very nicely. We had some production time. Still had a very fast turnaround, but uh, we, we actually could create something very, very beautiful. I might be proudest of that in terms of production value. And there's so many nice productions, but I think this is uh, standing out. And also depending on, on what you look for in a production. Um, like, I mean, there's definitely the, the most fun shoots out there um, and then, I mean, the best product which you're proudest of and, and everything. And um, there's, there, there's so many aspects uh, you can, can be proud of, which is not even visible to the user in the end, you know, because you figured maybe something finally out which is working now. And um, so I think we've been all quite proud of, of this thing because it was quite a turning point for us in, in quality and how we approach things and finally having like a very good way of working together and, and not 
crunching at certain points through technical um, issues or anything. That's very good. My last question, what would be your one piece of advice that you could give to our audience who are either into VR or are aspiring young engineers willing to explore this field? Be open. Um, make sure that you go through a good school, meaning not university, but also going to studios. Learn how processes are working. Um, know how production's working. Know every role's how to name stuff, how, how, how to back up stuff. There's so many practical things that you need to do as a standard and, and uh, that are important. And be open, um, do your research, be connected to the right groups and, and be curious. And I've been learning so much from, from other people which were always open, answering all of my questions. And even if they're like very basic, always taking it serious. And um, there are no stupid questions. It's important that you're asking your questions, getting connected to the right people. And also when you're at the point of being asked, give the right answers and, and try to encourage people doing the right thing. And it's, we, we all need to learn from each other. And uh, it's important that we are always communicating and you can always get in touch with me also and, and ask questions and uh, people get in touch with me and ask questions. And I try to always help them as, as good as possible as I can. And uh, it's, it's one big community and um, I'm, I'm still learning from other people. And uh, that's, that's a huge asset of a network of, of knowing people and knowing where to get your knowledge from. Yeah, be, be keen, be open and, and learn and learn and learn. There are no mistakes. There are mistakes, but I mean, make them once and then you get over it and then you learn something new. And um, yeah, it's important. Thank you. You have been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast. This episode was produced by Gillian Duffy and Giacomo Corpino and included music by Nobs Bergamo. Thanks for listening.